Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Ewan, congratulations on making it to work today. A bit of a challenge for lots of people, as most trains in and around London are not running. The underground luckily is, so we might have a chance of getting home later uh, as well. But this is going to be one of the big topics, of course, at today's PMQs. It's the TUC Day of Action. Up to half a million workers taking part. Teachers, university lecturers, train drivers, rail workers, border officials and civil servants. But we're here. Fear not. We are here. We are here. Not striking. Yeah, we'll be speaking to the TUC's uh, Kevin Rowan a little bit later in the programme, asking uh, whether he thinks he's actually going to achieve uh, much with this uh, coordinated day of strike action. Interesting quote uh, of one Tory MP by Politico saying that the strikes haven't dealt uh, that much political damage to the government so far, but schools shutting will be the first time that a lot of people feel the impact. And I think this is this is key, isn't it? Is that uh, lots of people don't use the trains. We forget that sometimes living in London. Is that trains are a uh, minority uh, uh, way of getting to work. Most people drive to work. Uh, and the NHS strikes, shocking as they are, of course, most people, thank goodness, are healthy. Uh, so they don't need an ambulance every day. So a lot of these strikes, I think, haven't touched people on a daily basis. But millions of people, of course, have kids. And there's going to be a problem for them if they can't go to school. Yeah, certainly. Actually, Bloomberg Economics has been looking to try to estimate the cost of the strikes in the last quarter of last year. So the last three months of 2022, £1.5 billion pounds, uh, is the cost that our colleague Dan Hansen um, has put on it. He's our senior UK economist at Bloomberg. So the impact of the economy, it's a big number. It's not huge in the overall context, though, of the UK economy. Yeah, uh, 0.2% of of GDP. Of course, that, as you say, is not a huge amount in context. But when uh, the economy is already teetering on the edge of recession, well, that uh, could just sort of knock us over. Although that that forecast from the IMF yesterday uh, was was pretty uh, gloomy, uh, wasn't it? Uh, Starmer is just about to uh, stand up, I believe. His words about the First Minister of Wales and the sad loss of his wife. Everybody, I think, knows just how close they were. Um, and I know that he's absolutely devastated um, by her loss at the weekend. Mr. Speaker, when the Prime Minister briefly emerged from his hibernation at the weekend, he raised more questions than answers. So, in the interests of integrity and accountability, can he set the record straight? Did his now former chair tell government officials that he was under investigation by the taxman before or after the Prime Minister appointed him? Prime Minister, uh, Mr Speaker, I appointed the independent adviser to investigate this matter fully. He, He has set out his findings in detail over the weekend, and on receipt of those findings, I took action, and I refer the Honourable Gentleman to the independent adviser's report. Uh, uh, 
oh come on, anyone picking up a anyone picking up a newspaper in July last year would have known that HMRC and the National Crime Agency were investigating months before he appointed him. Mr Speaker, the Independent, 6th of July, new Chancellor's finances secretly investigated by the National Crime Agency. The Observer, three days later, 9th of July, revealed officials raised flag over tax affairs before he was appointed Chancellor. The Financial Times, the next day, 10th of July, pressure bills to explain his finances. Is he saying his officials hid this information from him, or was he just too incurious to ask any questions? Mr Speaker, as I've said before at the dispatch box, the usual appointments process was followed with respect to the Minister Without Portfolio. No issues were raised with me at the time of his appointment, but as the Independent Advisor's report makes clear, there was a serious breach of the ministerial code, and that's why I took decisive action on receipt of that report. So, in relation to his former chair, his defence is, nobody told me, I didn't know, I didn't ask any questions. Is the Prime Minister now also going to claim that he was the... O- Order, Prime, Prime Minister. Mr Gullis, we heard enough last week. I can't hear what you're saying. I might not be able to hear what you're saying, but I can certainly see your mouth moving. It'll be moving outside if it continues. Prime Minister. So, for his former chair, nobody told me I didn't know, I didn't ask any questions. Is the Prime Minister now also going to claim that he's the only person completely unaware of serious allegations of bullying against the Deputy Prime Minister before he appointed him? Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable Gentleman asked uh, asked these questions about what was known, and I followed due process. I appointed an independent adviser as soon as I was made aware of uh, as soon as I was made aware of new information, the independent advisers conducted this process. But if he is so concerned about what people are saying and is so concerned about behaviour in public life, then recently one of his own MPs was forced to speak out because being in his party had reminded her of being in an abusive relationship. And then, and then, and then his own office was caught undermining her. He ought to be supporting her and her colleagues, but if he can't be trusted to stand up for the women in his party, he can't be trusted to stand up for Britain. Mr Speaker, the last count, at the last count, the Deputy Prime Minister was facing 24 separate allegations of bullying. According to recent reports, some of the complainants were physically sick. One says they were left suicidal. How would he feel if one of his friends or relatives was being forced to work for a bully simply because the man at the top was too weak to do anything about it? Mr Speaker, I I noticed he didn't say anything about why one of his own MPs describes being in his own party. And Mr Nipper, when I was made aware of formal complaints, I instructed a leading independent KC to conduct an investigation because I take action when these things happen. But what did he say at the weekend? He said at the weekend that hate had been allowed to spread unchallenged in the Labour Party under his predecessor. He was speaking as if he wasn't even there. 
but he was sitting right next to him, supporting him for four long years, not challenging, and it is typical of him, Mr Speaker, declining to lead, sitting on the fence, carping from the sidelines, and, and never standing up for a principle that matters. I want to hear both sides, and I'm not going to have, be interrupted by either side. And I'm particularly looking for people who want to continue this, because we will sort it out today. Keir Starmer. Speaker, it's just like one of his predecessors who treated questions about conduct as something to brush off, who thought that ducking responsibility was a perfectly reasonable response for a Prime Minister. At least in fairness, his predecessor didn't go around pretending he was a paragon of integrity and accountability. <laughs> but on that subject, was it a coincidence that the two people who arranged an £800,000 line of credit for the former Prime Minister were both shortlisted for plum jobs at the BBC and the British Council? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker. As we addressed previously, the appointments process for the BBC Chairman is rigorous, it's transparent, it's set out in a public code of conduct, and indeed, and indeed, was fully supported not just by an expert panel members, but also by the cross-party DCMS Select Committee, including, including where Labour members described the appointment as impressive. But Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, back. Back, back this week in terms of what is actually happening to the people of this country, he voted, he voted this week with the unions to oppose minimum safety levels. He voted with Just Stop Oil to water down the public order bill. And what do the unions and Just Stop Oil have in common? They bankroll him and his party, Mr Speaker. So while he sides with extremist protesters and union bosses, we stand up for hard-working Britons and schoolchildren. After 13 years in power, trying to blame the Labour Party for his failure to sort out the strikes is it's rank pathetic. The Tory party's addiction to sleaze and scandal has done huge damage to this country, and the cost to the public keeps adding up. We've got a justice system letting murderers walk the streets, heart attack victims waking hours for an ambulance, an economy that's shrinking quicker than his leadership. And even I couldn't quite believe it when I saw that his government is expecting taxpayers to pay the legal fees for the member for Uxbridge defending himself over his lockdown rule breaking. A quarter of a million pounds. Surely even this Prime Minister can put his foot down, stand up to his old boss and tell him he made the mess, he can pick up the bill. Mr Speaker, he can't stand up to his union bosses. He can't, he, he can't, he can't stand up for Britain's school children today. And he can't stand up for the women in his party, Mr Speaker. We're getting on, we're halving inflation, we're growing the economy, we're reducing debt, we're cutting waiting lists and we're stopping the boat. While he can't even figure out what he believes in, we'll keep delivering for Britain. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Would my right honourable friend agree with me that the integrated care boards must prioritise more access to new GP services, especially in places like South Derbyshire, where new housing estates are being built at the fastest rate in England, and in particular on the new brownfield development of Drakelow? Well, Mr. Speaker, the government is committed to increasing the number of doctors in general practice, and last year saw the highest ever number of doctors accept a GP training place. The BMA are consulted each year on the funding of GP services, and my honourable friend will know that the NHS has a statutory duty to ensure sufficient medical services, including general practice, in each local area. Leader of the SNP, Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, I'd like to pass on my condolences and indeed those of my party to the First Minister of Wales and also to the family, friends and colleagues of firefighter Barry Martin, who so sadly lost his life following the blaze in Edinburgh just last week. Mr Speaker, we've just marked the three-year anniversary of Brexit and we've learned... They'll not not be cheering in a moment, Mr Speaker. Because we have learned, we have learned three, we have learned three things. The UK's trade deficit has grown. Yep. The economy is being hit to the tune of hundred billion pounds each year. And of course, and of course, we know that the UK's economy is expected to be the worst performing of all advanced nations. Does the Prime Minister still believe that the UK can afford not to be in the European Union? Minister. Well, uh, Mr Speaker, if you actually look at it, since, the, uh, since, since Brexit, the UK has grown exactly the same as Germany has, uh, Mr Speaker. But uh, not only that, we are taking advantage of Brexit to deliver for the people across the UK, whether it's the fishing and farming communities of Scotland, whether it's through the two new free ports that we've just announced. But, Mr Speaker, the difference between his party and ours is that we respect referendums. Yeah. Okay, that was the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak there answering questions in Parliament. Interesting to hear Stephen Flynn from the SNP there reference the Bloomberg Economics study published yesterday showing that cost of Brexit of 100 million, 100 billion pounds, I should say, to the UK economy um, every year. So, so interesting to hear the both the question and the response there on that issue. You uh, and overall, I mean, Keir Starmer spent a lot of his time talking about personalities within the Conservative Party and various either allegations or investigations taking place around them. And I felt like not very much time talking about strikes. Yeah, I mean, strikes, he he didn't really ask about strikes at all, did he? He sort of referenced it obliquely. But yeah, he wanted to really stick on what I guess he would call uh, a Tory sleaze, not only referencing Nadim Zahai, which presumably the Prime Minister hoped had gone away uh, with with his his sacking, but also Dominic Robb, the allegations of bullying, and even mentioning uh, the appointment of the BBC chairman uh, and the Boris Johnson uh, uh, kerfuffle. Um, so it seems that he was very keen to, to go on that. It does seem to me that the two men are increasingly kind of talking across each other. I felt today that there wasn't wasn't much interaction. Starmer would ask one thing, and Sunak would trot out his point on another thing. It, it wasn't really a discussion, was it? It felt like so many interviews that we do <laughs> on this programme where you feel like you ask a question and the person hasn't heard it uh, at the end. So that's PMQs. We've heard from Rishi Sunak. Bloomberg, though, has also been speaking to unions on the picket lines today on the TUC's Day of Action. Let's start with the National Education Union General Secretary, Kevin Courtney. He says the government's argument on inflation doesn't stack up. 
no, bit, no price has to go up because a teacher gets a pay rise. There's no direct impact on inflation. There are no prices linked to, to teachers' teacher salaries. And we don't accept that argument. And there are many economists, including in the Financial Times, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times, saying this is a bogus argument that these pays, that the current inflation spike we've got is nothing to do with wages. And there are, the, the only price they seem to want to control is the price of our labour. Well, the, the train drivers are no more optimistic than the teachers. Aslef General, Assistant General Secretary Simon Weller says that the government's negotiating stance has made things worse. We've gone backwards. We're now in a worse place than we were than six months ago. Well, the head of the PCS, the largest trade union of civil servants, Mark Zervatke, says a divide-and-conquer approach from ministers won't work. Well, it's what they've done in the past, um, but they'll struggle, I think, to get away with that this time because they've set their store on not giving anything to anyone. And I think the minute they decide to treat one group of workers differently, I think the effect that will have is that others will say, well, we're going to fight on them because we all deserve to be treated properly. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So all these different workers pushing for more pay. We wanted to talk to a key group in all of this, the Trades Union Congress. Well, we caught up with the TUC's Head of Organising Services and Learning, Kevin Rowan. We asked him why they've organised this day of action. There's two issues, really. One, we'd, we'd like the government to do more to settle the current disputes that are, that, that are you know, hampering uh, delivery of public services and really impacting on public service workers. We want them to get around the table and negotiate a fair pay deal that I think most people uh, understand uh, our teachers, nurses, other public servants uh, deserve, but also to ask them to think again about their minimum service levels legislation, which is essentially a, a, a strike ban in all, in all but name. We think the government have got that wrong. We think the public uh, don't believe that the government have got it right, and we're asking them to think again. But whether we make any progress or not, it's difficult because the government uh, have been reluctant to really speak to us about any of these things. Now, Kevin, Kevin, for some, it's the first day of strikes, teachers, for instance, but others, uh, the rail workers, for instance, have been out for months. How do you prevent strike fatigue? Well, I think, uh, obviously, the longer the strikes go on, the more difficult it is for uh for, for 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 those that are taking strike to kind of stay to keep the faith if you like to try and win the dispute but i think the strength of feeling is so strong right across the economy uh you know everything from rail to teachers uh to other workers in the private sector other workers in the public services the strength of feeling is so high about the the challenges of the cost of living crisis that unless they see movement 
they don't feel that they've got any other option but to uh, to stand up and, and kind of push back against the experiences that they're having. So uh, we're not seeing uh, workers at the moment get, get, if you like, tired or fatigued uh, about this. They're, they're just increasingly determined that they're going to try and persuade the government or their employers to try and try and move on this. I think we, we've, we've not seen the strength of feeling for some considerable years. Uh, workers are genuinely angry and frustrated, genuinely desperate about the situation that they're, that they're facing. And the more that we can kind of, I guess, show solidarity to those workers, the more that they can get the messages of support from public and from other uh, trade unions there, uh, the longer they're able to kind of maintain that, uh, that, that pressure on government and on their employers. So does that mean that people should be prepared for more days like today where we'll see strikes across all sorts of different sectors? Well, I'm certainly seeing a determination and a commitment from working people to, uh, to, to, to kind of get a better solution uh, uh, in a way that I haven't seen for a number of years. I think workers are genuinely really frustrated and angry and really disappointed, actually, that their employers or, or the government aren't kind of listening to their uh, concerns and responding. So uh, unless we do see a change from uh, from from government in, in the public sector or from employers in the private sector, then I think it is inevitable that we will see uh, more strike action. Obviously, we've seen the FBU ballot uh, announcement this week. We're seeing other unions uh, balloting. We're seeing uh, parts of the public sector that didn't meet the threshold re-balloting. So I think rather than seeing, you know, a, a kind of waning in support for action, we're seeing a hardening of union positions and uh, the government need to recognise this, I think, and come around the table in good faith to try and resolve the disputes. What does good faith mean to you? What would prevent more strike action? Well, I think people have been pretty clear they, they need to see a different offer on the table in terms of, of pay, uh, both for this year and moving into the kind of pay rounds uh, for, for the year ahead. Now, uh, I, I think Jeremy Hunt, as Chancellor, said he will meet the unions. He said that in the select committee. He hasn't done that. Uh, so that, that, for me, is not an indication of good faith. I think the government needs to come to the table with a recognition that uh, public sector workers have been enduring below uh, inflation pay rises for, for years and years. You can just about get away with that when inflation's at 1%. You can't get away with that when inflation's over 10%. And the government needs to come with a better offer. They need to find some money uh, uh, for these workers. And they need to kind of put that on the table so that we can move on. Kevin, on on that question, the government's going to borrow about £180 billion this year. That's about £6,000 for every household in the country. Do you honestly think there's a good chance of of a substantial pay rise in the public sector? Well, I think there's a chance for movement in in paying the public sector. And, you know, there there is always uh, a solution to be found. There's always common ground that, that both parties uh, can land on. But it does take both parties to come to the table with good faith. Now, the the, the government are making choices on the way in which they uh, they they tax in the economy. You know, they could get uh, uh, you know a, a better income from a windfall tax on the energy companies. They could tax wealth and profit in a different way than they are doing. I mean, the fact is share dividends are rising three times faster than wages and are not taxed at the same rate as wages. So there are choices that the government could make which would give them uh, some some wiggle room, really, to find a solution. 
but we're, we're not seeing any will for the government to do that. And I think that's that's disingenuous. That, that's that's a problem, mm. if you like, if the government says on the one hand they're negotiating, on the other hand the, these negotiations are effectively ministers telling unions that there's no more money in the pot when actually there could be more money in the pot. Do you worry that the government will take a divide and conquer strategy when it comes to the various unions and their pay claims? Will teachers and nurses get their pay settlement uh, as a priority over others? Well, I mean, it's hard to uh, understand that the government's got any uh, strategic approach to this at the minute. At the moment, the conversations are very much uh, one-sided with, with very little kind of actual negotiation. So it's hard to, it's hard to detect a strategy other than where we're going to demonstrate how tough we are and we're going to make things harder in the future for unions to take industrial action. Uh, w- whether they end up uh, offering one sector of the economy more money uh, or not, it, you know, it, it, it's hard to see that at the minute because they're getting stonewalled right across uh, uh, government departments. But uh, you know, the fact is that the the the, gov- the ball is in the government's part. They could they can resolve these disputes by coming to the table in good faith by offering uh, uh, more money on the table to workers who I think everybody in in the in the public recognises they deserve a fair pay rise. Everybody in the public recognises how hard they work and the service that they're bringing, how under pressure they are. The government's got to respond to that. At the moment, this kind of stonewalling and playing the hardball, it, it, it isn't going down well with anybody and it isn't a route to solutions here. That was the TUC's Kevin Rowan speaking to us a little bit earlier as well. So today's day of strike action going ahead. Of course, it's also a protest against the minimum services bill that the government has put forward. So that is something that TUC is is handing in a petition outside um, Parliament later on today as well. Um, Looking ahead towards, of course, we have more train strikes coming this week. There's the nurses strike and ambulance workers strikes next week as well. So this issue set to rumble on very interesting to hear the perspective there from Kevin Rowan of the TUC on this, the the worst day in more than a decade for strikes in the UK, almost half a million workers across a variety of sectors uh, on strike. The business continues in the House of Commons later today and we'll be hearing from uh, they'll be discussing more about the UK Infrastructure Bank, there'll also be a debate on the state pension age due uh, later on as well. Outside of the Chamber of the House of Commons though, there'll also be a dinner to mark 100 years of the Conservative Party's 1922 committee um, with MPs attending that. Rishi Sunak is also due to speak at that as well. And the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking at an Atlantic Council event in Washington. He'll be talking about the importance of Western unity and support for Ukraine and what more uh, can be done to support them as well. Also, in case you've missed it, tomorrow's Rishi Sunak's 100 days in office. Good for him. He's made it twice as long as Liz Truss. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you usually listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Marufal Hussein was on sound. Special thanks to Eamon Farhat for his reporting and speaking to some of the union bosses that we heard from a little bit earlier uh, in the programme. We will have more, of course, uh, on all of these stories on Bloomberg UK Politics tomorrow. Keep an eye out too for any news that might come around Brexit. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.